Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 117, June 12th to June 18th, 1863. Last week, we talked about two engagements, one in Virginia, the other in Louisiana. Milliken's Bend will be important because the force was primarily made up of black soldiers, so combine that with the action at Port Hudson, and then the soon-to-be assault on Fort Wagner, and we have a trifecta of brave performances that will turn the opinions of the North. We also had the largest cavalry battle of the war so far in Brandy Station. This week we have a few more events, including the second invasion of the North, and continuing to set up for Gettysburg. Before we do those things, though, I want to head back to Louisiana. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the Patreon. And we did have a Patreon episode here that should be posted. uh, Memoir review for Maxley Sorrell. And that one is going, I think, pretty nicely with some of the events that we have coming up or have gone through here recently and uh, also coming up. So if that sounds like something that will interest you, Please check that out. There is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And then, of course, it's hard to believe we're here in June and a couple episodes away from Gettysburg. So probably doing a movie review, uh, the classic movie Gettysburg. Uh, So we'll be talking about that and just why it's probably one of the better Civil War movies out there. So if that sounds like something that interests you, that's coming right around the corner. And once again, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So we had Milliken's Bend as a half-hearted attempt to free Vicksburg from siege. We need to talk about three other smaller-sized battles that did about as much. When all is said and done, I want to mention briefly the feelings of the Confederates on breaking the siege. At the same time as Milliken's Bend, another brigade commander amongst Walker's division, known as the Greyhounds, were attempting to assault Young's Point, but this came to nothing. Richard Taylor would launch a series of attempts in Louisiana, that being his district, as you recall, to open up Port Hudson or otherwise divert Union resources away from the siege. Laforche Crossing would be the first of these smaller-scale actions. James Major and his Texas Brigade would engage Union soldiers who had sallied out near Brashear City, this actually closer to New Orleans. Remember, we talked about how the Confederates are going to move back through the same Bayou Tesh region that Banks had moved up, pushing Taylor back and capturing, some would also say looting, supplies in the area. The rebels were able to take advantage of Banks having moved to the other side of the river, Port Hudson being on the east, and those general operations that we had been talking about mostly being on the west side. June 20th and June 21st would see Major engage Union troops, his men being primarily cavalry, and would try a few attempts at the Union positions guarding a key crossing point. Having no luck, they would eventually withdraw. Casualty figures are questionable, maybe some 50 or so for the Union and 200 for the Confederates. On June 28th, Major and Tom Green would combine forces and take a crack at Donaldsville. Now, Donaldsville was a bit closer to Baton Rouge, actually a little south and on the west side of the river. 
Union troops had built a star fortification named Fort Butler, which was complete with a moat and six 24-pound cannon. The strategy was, for part of the Confederate force, to keep the defenders engaged while units slipped around to the flanks. This would include trying to pick off members of the artillery crews in order to neutralize the cannon. Although there was only one regiment, the 28th Maine, manning the fort, there was a Union Navy presence. Because of this, the attack would be done at night to neutralize this advantage. Almost as soon as the attack began, the Navy got involved anyway, shelling the attacking rebels. If you recall from last week, we talked about Milliken's Bend and how the Navy is effectively able to save what's left of the Union command there. If Had they not been there, it was very likely there could have been an even higher casualty count. But even with the Union Navy presence, there were some successes, the rebels being able to get into the outer defenses, but many became trapped in the moat around the fort. This would lead many to retreat or surrender. There is some claim that rebels used a white flag to try to pick off the enemy, but it is uncertain exactly what happened. The attempts at Fort Butler ended in failure, with 21 Union casualties compared with 250 Confederate. Finally, we also have action at Goodrich's Landing on the 29th and 30th. William Parsons and his Texas and Louisiana Cavalry would be given the opportunity to raid against river supply bases set up by Grant. At Goodrich's Landing, they would demand the surrender of the Federals, who would hold up on an old Indian mound. The garrison would surrender, Parsons adding to his victories by ambushing a contingent of the 1st Kansas Cavalry. Alfred Ellett and his Marine Battalion would show up on the 30th, and after some skirmishing, would drive away the rebels. This would be the last action to try to aid Vicksburg. So the question remains, why did the Confederates not put more emphasis on freeing Pemberton? Well, the Trans-Mississippi was a different department, so it was not conducive to cooperation. You have Kirby Smith and Theophilus Holmes not necessarily playing ball. There was a big delay in getting the Greyhounds even to a point where they could assist. Grant's line of communication and supply is on a side of the river, where a concentrated effort could at least do something to disrupt the operations early in the campaign. When the Federals become established at Vicksburg, then it's pretty much too late. But the big question is, if there had been a real concentration of efforts when Grant is still, say, at Port Gibson, could it have been a different story? I think that's likely. These skirmishing operations were a month too late. On the landward side, Joseph Johnson has a general defeatist attitude, so he will essentially not even put in an effort. If there had been a more imaginative commander and someone to take overall charge, then things might have been different. It could have been a more uncomfortable time for the Union, that's for sure. As it was, though, this was just simply not the right personnel in terms of generals and manpower, which it should be said is at a premium. Grant benefits, and the Confederacy suffers as a result. Let's take a break and talk about naval action at Wausau Sound, Georgia, that occurred on June 17, 1863. 
In this action, we have the CSS Atlanta, which was an ironclad ram converted from a Scottish vessel, Fignal, which had been a blockade runner in 1861, bringing many valuable military supplies into Savannah. With the U.S. Navy increasing pressure to thwart a return journey, the Fignal was kept stateside, and the conversion process begun. The CSS Atlanta was armored and included several Brooke rifles, but there were some problems. Namely, it was slow, and still had a larger draft, which we have discussed before as an issue when operating in shallower waters. In addition, she had a leak problem, being of a poorer conversion quality and had issues with ventilation, making for uncomfortable times in warmer weather. But on the flip side of the coin, the engine was a newer 1860 model, less complicated than some of the others, and she had an iron hull unlike some of the other converted vessels. Josiah Tatnell, who you remember was the commander of the CSS Virginia when that ship was destroyed, would take over command of the Atlanta in late 1862. From that point, he would seek to land a strike at the blockading fleet, including DuPont's ships around Port Royal, maybe even disrupting his planned assault on Charleston. His efforts would come to naught, and Tatnell would be replaced in favor of a younger officer, one whom Stephen Mallory would hope to display aggressive behavior. William Webb would be that officer, serving in the U.S. Navy prior to the Civil War and doing good service for the Rebel Navy around Newport News, back during the Battle of Hampton Roads. But Webb might not have been the best fit as new squadron commander, because although he was aggressive, you can also flip that into also making rash decisions. Much like Tatnell, he would want to take the fight to the enemy, but in a less calculated way. He had planned a strike at the Union Navy, but the Atlanta had run aground, thus being a little foreshadowing, as well as calling off the planned attempt. Webb would not be deterred. Ignoring orders from Mallory to wait until the ironclad ram joined him, he would wish to sortie out in Wausau Sound in search of the enemy. On the 17th, Webb would find the enemy in the form of the USS Nanhunt and the USS Weehawken, the Weehawken commanded by Captain John Rogers. These were both, of course, Passaic-class monitors, which would be tough opponents for Webb and the Atlanta on normal circumstances. But there would be no normal circumstances because the Atlanta ran aground shortly into the fight. This would allow the two U.S. Navy ironclads to approach and fire at closer range. Damage was done to the Atlanta, some of the armor being torn up, exposing wood underneath, which wounded some of the crew. What was more, the heavy shots had elevated the vessel, enough to make return fire difficult. Facing these odds, Webb would surrender his ship, one of only two Confederate ironclads captured intact during the war. Rogers would gain some fame, being promoted to Commodore as a result of the Wausau Sound fight. This is yet another example of the U.S. Navy's superiority, the Confederacy being unable to compete with the amount of enemy ships. Should also be said, as we mentioned, there was a little bit of a personnel problem as well, you know. Webb, a little bit of an aggressive commander, and maybe if you are having all these chips stacked against you, perhaps an aggressive mindset is 
necessary or will be deemed necessary. But when you have a limited set of resources to work with, you have to make sure that when you're taking these chances, it's going to be more calculated. Before we get into 2nd Winchester, which will in turn open up the road to Gettysburg, we need to talk about the makeup of the Army of Northern Virginia. So far in the East, Robert E. Lee had created a system that worked very well. Jackson with an attacking corps, and Longstreet with a defensive corps, essentially. Longstreet does do some offensive action, though. That's something that a lot of people criticize him for, and they say he's not really all that great offensively, but there are some examples of his more aggressive and offensive mind at work during the war. Longstreet technically was the ranking subordinate, though there was seemingly more of an understanding between Jackson and Lee. No Jackson would be a problem for a variety of reasons. Lee would like to mimic the success of having some semi-independent corps commanders, but the problem was he needed at least one more, although he will end up with two. Richard Ewell, Jackson's primary subordinate, would be one. A.P. Hill, who had been impulsive in command, would be the other. Now, these might not have been the best choices as we we're going to see. Ewell was a good soldier, but a good soldier in the respect that he would need to be told what to do rather than take the initiative himself. Odd, considering he complained that's exactly how Jackson would treat him. A.P. Hill will also have his limitations as we're going to see. It's not helping that he's going to be ill. The main point we need to make when discussing the makeup of the Army of Northern Virginia is that Lee has to replace a good amount of officers after Chancellorsville. That impact maybe we cannot see at the division level, but we can see it more at the brigade and even further at the regimental level. Fortunately for our purposes here today, we have already been at least introduced to many of the officers. In the First Corps, under James Longstreet, there will be a division under Lafayette McClaws, George Pickett, and John Bell Hood. McClaws will have his own issues with Old Pete, and is going to have brigades under South Carolinian Kershaw, the Mississippi Brigade of William Barksdale, and Georgia Brigades under Paul Sims and William Wofford. Pickett is an interesting case, because as his division moves up to Richmond, there will be two brigades held behind, meaning he goes from the largest to in fact the smallest division. His brigades under Richard Garnett, seeking redemption from his benching by Jackson, Louis Armistead, and James Kemper, all of the regiments being from Virginia. Hood will have an Alabama brigade under Evander Law, the Texas brigade with the 3rd Arkansas of course as well under Jerome Robertson, and then Georgia Brigades under Ty Anderson and Henry Benning. Robertson had served the Army of Texas before their statehood, and will go into railroads after the war. His nickname was Aunt Polly because of his care toward his men. You will take over essentially Jackson's old corps, of course, minus A.P. Hill. Divisions will be under Jubal Early, Robert Rhodes, and Allegheny Johnson, taking over for the inexperienced Raleigh Colston. Early will have the Louisiana Brigade under Harry Hayes, extra Billy Smith commanding some Virginia regiments, James Avery taking over for the Wounded Hoke with North Carolina regiments, and of course John Gordon commanding a brigade of Georgians. 
Ike Avery was a good choice to take over for Robert Hoke, as he had risen through the ranks. Johnson will have brigades under Marilyn Stewart, the Stonewall Brigade under James Walker, Nichols Brigade, Jesse Williams commanding for the wounded Nichols, and John M. Jones. Rum Jones had attended West Point prior to the war, and served in Utah before the outbreak of hostilities. If you're wondering why he has the nickname Rum Jones, well, obviously, Whittle is a little bit of a drinker, and you had to drink quite a lot to get a nickname like that uh, in the Civil War era, so as you can imagine, it's actually going to get him in trouble after the campaign. Rhodes will have an interesting mix, seeing some of the swapped brigades coming from North Carolina. North Carolina at this time is going to have a mixed reputation, many of their regiments holding a less-than-enthusiastic service to the cause. Rhodes will have a young West Pointer, Junius Daniel, aggressive George P. Doles, commanding Georgians, a young upcoming officer named Stephen Ramsour, commanding some North Carolinians, along with Alfred Iverson, and finally Edward O'Neill, commanding the old Alabama Brigade. A.P. Hill will have divisions under Richard Anderson, Henry Heath, and Dorsey Pender. Anderson will have a brigade under Academus Wilcox, seeking promotion, Billy Mahone and his Virginians, Rand's Wright's Brigade of Georgians, David Lang and three Florida regiments, and Carnot Posey and a brigade of Mississippi regiments. Heath will have James Pettigrew and his replacement regiments from North Carolina. John Brockenbaugh and the Virginia regiments, James Archer and his mixed brigade, and Jefferson Davis's inexperienced nephew, Joe Davis. Overall, this division will have interesting issues in command, as we will soon see. Finally, Pender will have the veteran South Carolina Brigade under young Abner Perrin, replacing James McGowan, who was wounded at Chancellorsville, James Lane and his North Carolinians, Edward Thomas and his Brigade of Georgians, and Alfred Scales and a Brigade of North Carolina Regiments. Scales is a politician and will become the governor of North Carolina after the war. While technically Pendleton will be the chief of artillery on paper, it's really going to be E. Porter Alexander who's in charge and will make more of an impact on our story. As we have alluded to, the Second Battle of Winchester will be conducted on June 14th. It would be Richard Ewell's job to clear the valley of any Union obstructions on their track north. Joining his corps will be cavalry under Albert Jenkins. Jenkins made his name commanding partisan rangers, and his men reflected this, being a little bit disorganized. Facing off against Ewell would be Robert Milroy. Now, Milroy was not well liked by the southern populace. His heavy abolitionist views led to harsh treatment of locals in Winchester, which then in fact led to a $100,000 bounty to be placed on his head, kind of like Benjamin Butler. Milroy would expel those considered to be rebels. He would billet men in their homes and even read their mail. What is more, he wrote that he enjoyed being the tyrant to his wife, so it was on the wish list of southern supporting citizens in Winchester that he get some comeuppance. Milroy did have a force of some 6,900 men in three brigades, 
One brigade was a little east at Berryville, while the other two occupied defenses around Winchester. The Union General had spent some time trying to improve these works, which included several forts around Winchester, but they were all deemed to be very ill-placed. One main downfall of his dispositions was that his pickets were drawn in, afraid of rebel raiders and cavalry. Halleck also believed that overall this was an untenable position, manned by mostly raw recruits with little experience. He would wish to have Milroy withdraw out of the area of Prest and maybe link up with the Harpers Ferry garrison. The city was of limited military value, but as we have already alluded to, it was of value to Milroy. Robert Shank, his superior, would send an aide to make a decision. The aide writing it was indefensible, but no action was taken. Ewell, in the meantime, would lay out a plan of attack that included two flanking movements, one commanded by Allegheny Johnson, the other by Jubal Early. Johnson and Early would both make contact with Union pickets on the morning of June 13th. Johnson on the Front Royal Pike and Early on the Valley Pike. Early actually marching over the area near the 1862 Kernstown Battle. As you can imagine this being Jackson's old command, many of the officers and men were actually very well familiar with the area. To illustrate the experience gap, it was recorded that the Union troops were milling about under trees instead of tentatively manning their works and pickets. Jenkins' vanguard was ambushed by the 13th Pennsylvania, the Irish Dragoons though. Yankee artillery did hold early at bay for the evening, meaning that there was at least something to Milroy's assumption that he had a strong position. Milroy, in the meantime, had pulled his men into the defenses, still not really aware of exactly the predicament he was in. This was unfortunate because Rhodes and his division would move around Winchester, blocking off escape toward Martinsburg. He will take Bunker Hill and drive the Federal garrison toward Harper's Ferry. In efforts that would have made Jackson proud, Ewell decided with Early on a flanking motion. He would move his men around to the west and pin down the defenders with artillery. Because of the poor position, rebel artillery and infantry were able to get close. A bombardment would precede the attack, catching the Union troops by surprise. Harry Hayes would lead his Louisiana Tigers close to the enemy works and lead an assault, carrying them with hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Northern guns in this part of the field were turned on the defenders, and this would dissuade a Union counterattack. Milroy had actually considered attacking a holding force of John Gordon's before the Tigers got the jump on him. That night, Milroy would hold a council of war with his officers and make the decision to try to make a break for it toward Harper's Ferry on the Charlestown Road. They would be able to bypass Rhodes and his men relatively north of the town in this way. But Ewell, on the other hand, had anticipated this kind of retreat, and had sent Allegheny Johnson to block this route. Johnson had his men set up along a railroad embankment near a place called Stevenson's Depot. This stage of the fighting occurred mostly in the dark, and saw the Union troops desperately attacking the Confederates, who would not be moved from their positions. Rebel artillery would hold onto a key bridge crossing, suffering heavy casualties. All attacks failed, and the enemy artillery being put to good use. 
Stewart and Williams would have their brigades engage the enemy, while Walker arrived on the field to the north, flanking the attacking Federals. In the process, Williams would actually detach two regiments to thwart a flanking motion by Milroy. A charge would rout the men and force surrenders. Milroy would call that it was to be every man for himself. Many of the Union troops would surrender, Milroy himself riding away and being arrested at Harper's Ferry. These surrenders were a little controversial, as some of the Union defenders believed that they could have made it a little bit harder on their attackers. While he would be acquitted of any charges, Halleck would recommend that he not hold any future commands. Total Union losses were at 4,443, with over 4,000 taken prisoner. These units would actually not be reformed despite their parole. Confederates had lost far less at 266, meaning this, like Richmond, Kentucky, was one of the more lopsided rebel victories of the war. Many supplies had been captured, which was also valuable to Lee's army. More importantly, the way was now open to invade the North. Second Winchester would spark some panic amongst the North. Calls for militia would immediately start. Darius Couch, who you remember had recently commanded the Second Corps, would be placed in charge of militia efforts at Harrisburg. Harrisburg would be the ultimate destination for the Confederates, which had Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin very uneasy. If they could get to Harrisburg, what was going to be next? Could it be Philadelphia, as some rebels boasted? Let's talk briefly about the time that the Confederates spend in Pennsylvania. Now, there will be some skirmishing, which we will discuss, but first let's talk about the route the Confederates take to get there. Ewell's Corps is going to use South Mountain as a kind of screen to move north. Instead of messing with moving to the other side of the mountain range, aka Frederick, as had been done in the Antietam campaign, the Confederates will go through Hagerstown. If you recall, that's where Longstreet was when the Battle of South Mountain takes place. From Hagerstown, they will continue north to Chambersburg. Ewell will continue to swing around north on his march to Harrisburg. Now, Ewell will have Jenkins' irregulars with him, and he will also have the 35th Battalion under Elijah White, the Comanches, but other than that, he is really on his own. Fanning out, Jubal Early will actually march through Gettysburg on his way to York, trying to secure a key crossing of the Susquehanna River. Outside of Gettysburg, Jubal Early will run into some of the already mentioned militia, the 26th militia, actually made up of recruits from Gettysburg itself. On the 26th of June, the 35th Virginia Cavalry, as well as John B. Gordon's brigade, would easily brush aside the unorganized unit with the capture of many prisoners. Early in the month, around June 21st, the first Confederate soldier had been killed near Cashtown by a civilian who had been wronged during Stewart's early Pennsylvania raid. A man who would be attached to the militia cavalry from Adams County, named George Washington Sandho, would be the first Federal fatality during this fighting. Some of the militia was actually made up of students from Pennsylvania College, which today is actually Gettysburg College. So motley was the makeup of these men that the prickly early would scold them, barking that they should have stayed home instead of out in the fields where they could get hurt. Early will then move on through the town, acquiring supplies before moving on further to the east. 
Speaking of that, we need to spend some time talking about the Confederate behavior once into Pennsylvania. While many sources I see cite that Robert E. Lee orders there to be no looting, it is also pointed out that the Confederate army is not shy about taking their share of supplies. It is a sharp contrast to the harsh treatment of Virginia by, say, John Pope and other abolitionist officers should also be pointed out. Instead of stealing these things, the army is going to issue script, receipts for reimbursement, although there certainly probably was some foraging happening by the troops. Getting script or receipts was going to be essentially useless to the Pennsylvania civilians, so they're going down in terms of everything from flour to horse flesh. Additionally, there is the unfortunate practice recorded of rounding up blacks for their transport back to the south, regardless of their status as free men in the north. It's hard to say exactly how many of these individuals were put into servitude, but I've seen some estimates as maybe a couple hundred. Also, I've noticed the landscape. That is foreign to some of the southern soldiers. Many write about how farm lots are small, certainly not the same as the plantations many had come from. It's an interesting thought about the cultural differences between North and South, illustrated in some of the writings of these soldiers. So far, despite lack of Stuart, which we'll get into next episode, the invasion is going very well for Lee. In fact, Jenkins will make it to the outskirts of Harrisburg and lob a few shells. Ewell wished to be the first Confederate general to capture a northern capital, an honor he is going to be denied. Early will have to sit and watch as a capable militia commander, who had already served in the Army of the Potomac, burns a bridge at Wrightsville to deny the enemy at least that crossing point. But this is where the advance will halt. Why exactly? Because Lee is going to get news from a scout, also maybe spy, George Harrison, who tells him that the Federal Army is at Frederick, which is a lot closer than Lee had previously thought. He questioned other officers if they knew the whereabouts of his cavalry wing, sorely missed in this part of the campaign. He had spoken to Hood, and was quoted as having said that they will soon have to go and find the enemy. Given this information, Lee would decide to concentrate his forces. You will be recalled, A.P. Hill being at Cashtown, not too far from Gettysburg, and Longstreet not too far behind. Also news to Lee would be that the Army of the Potomac has a new commanding officer. We need to also quickly check in on the Union Army. Now is a good time as any to say goodbye to Joe Hooker. The Army of the Potomac had essentially stolen a march on Lee, with the various corps spreading out in their lines of march. Should recall that Hooker is wearing the patience of Lincoln and Halleck, and would request for additional troops. He was not allowed the commands of the garrison at Harper's Ferry, nor the Washington garrison, reinforcements Hooker had decided he needed. Now why exactly was Hooker clamoring for more men? Essentially the same issue as before, with some enlistments expiring and the casualties sustained at Chancellorsville, meaning that there would be less men in the army. Hooker believed that he had enough soldiers to stalemate Lee, but not enough to drive home a victory. Hindsight being what it is, he may have had a point. Likewise, he may have also been suffering from a kind of unease that, say, McClellan had. However you cut it, when denied the Harper's Ferry garrison, Hooker would submit his resignation, which was gladly accepted. 
While he is not yet done with our story, we can have a mixed review of Hooker. He very nearly pulled off a grand offensive action at Chancellorsville, but right when victory seemed to be in his grasp, he would hesitate. Despite this battlefield flaw, he's able to bring morale back to the army and get their spirits higher. Even after Chancellorsville, there were still good spirits amongst the soldiers. While maybe not the best fit, he was very different than the previous commanders, to say the least. But who was going to take over for Fighting Joe? There was one logical choice, and that was George Gordon Meade. Meade had been a stalwart soldier in the previous campaigns, frustrated by John Reynolds seemingly stealing his promotions. There would be no objecting to this promotion either, Halleck and Lincoln giving him no choice but to accept, despite being lower in rank to some of the other generals in the army. Meade would receive orders that he must protect Washington and Baltimore. In addition, as an ultimate spiteful move, Halleck would give him control of the Harpers Ferry garrison. Crucially, Meade would also be given the discretion to move officers around as he pleased, regardless of their rank. This is going to come into play very soon, don't worry. But here is the problem for Meade. He really doesn't know where his army is. He needs to get control of the situation very quickly. So, he will issue on June 29th the Pipe Creek Circular. Near Union Mills, Maryland, a little to the east of Tawnytown, where Meade would set up his headquarters, there was a good defensive ground along Pipe Creek. From there, he could repel any attacks from Lee, but also, importantly, it would give him time to concentrate his forces, just as Lee was trying to do. But much likely, he also needed to find out where the enemy was, which is going to lead him roughly 15 miles to the north at a town called Gettysburg, where he and many others in the army will have a date with destiny. Let's pause there for now. This week we talked about more attempts to free Vicksburg and had naval action at Wausau Sound in Georgia, resulting in a crucial capture of a Confederate ironclad. We jumped more in-depth with the setup prior to the Battle of Gettysburg as well. First, we had a rundown of how the Army of Northern Virginia looks. We also had the Battle of Second Winchester, paving the way for the Confederates to get into Maryland, and then into Pennsylvania. We closed out with George Meade taking over the Army of the Potomac, a post he will actually hold until the end of the war. Next week, we have another busy time. We need to backtrack and go over some of the cavalry actions prior to the battle. It's important to understand why Lee does not have Stuart for these opening days of the campaign, although he may not have needed him if proper cavalry had been left at his disposal. I have seen it said that if Wade Hampton was left, for instance, then things might have played out very different. But if you get me on these hypotheticals, the episode's never going to end. We also need to cover the Tullahoma campaign, which might not be something everyone has heard of, but it is crucial to the fortunes of war shifting to the Federals in 1863. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.